So, Sean, I've been thinking um, it's almost one year from the murder of George Floyd. Um, and during that time and kind of the, the months afterwards, there was a lot of discussion um, in endurance sport and just generally around what needs to be done and how we need to do better, in particular, how white people need to do better. And mm-hmm. there was a lot of speculation about whether this movement for racial justice at, at that time was quote unquote different, right? Like mm-hmm. a lot of people felt like there was something in the air. There was something that was, um, that gave people um, hope that mm. there would mm-hmm. actually be some significant change that would come out of it. And I'm just wondering one year on, right? Has, right. have those conversations continued? Has that hope actually borne out? Mm, yeah, yeah. And, you know, even wondering about have those conversations fizzled out, whereas we return back to the, oh, yeah, we have the diversity and inclusion subcommittee that's prominently on our websites, but they're not really doing too much. We don't even know who's on the damn committee. Yeah, We just kind of mm-hmm. let the energy fizzle out of it. So, yeah, I'm wondering if those conversations are still happening and how are they happening, in fact? Who's uh, the momentum behind those conversations? I, I do think we need to kind of query whether those conversations have stopped and if they're still going, how are they still going? I'm Dr. Shauna Payne-Gold and I go by she, her, her pronouns. And I'm Dr. Lisa Ingefield and I go by she, her, hers. Welcome to Unfazed, a podcast to disrupt your normal and challenge your brain to go the distance. So Lisa, you and I spend a lot of our time facilitating, (laughs) whether it's uh, facilitating something formally or informally or someone... um, putting together a contract for us to come in as facilitators about certain topics. I know your field goes much more deeply than mine does specifically into actual intercultural communication, the words that we use and the ways in which we use them. And so I'm just thinking through how, uh, number one, if conversations have continued on and number two, how might they have been shaped or changed a year a mm-hmm. year later, I cannot believe we're a year beyond George Floyd's murder. But yeah, I wonder if they're happening and how they're happening. Yeah. And then if they're not happening, if they have fizzled out, like you suggested, um, why? I have this feeling mm. that um, at least, you know, for for white people, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. that it's so difficult to have these conversations on any kind of authentic level that the word mm. safety or feeling unsafe gets thrown around whenever I think a group is kind of approaching an authentic conversation where perhaps there could be transformational change and then white people retreat mm. claiming right. that they don't feel safe. And so then mm. that becomes a catalyst for those projects to just disappear. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, and you know, I think it's it's really interesting because sometimes I think it's all about the delivery and the fragility at the same time, because, you know, I've heard, you know, especially in dialogues that I've facilitated um, even prior to George Floyd, um, there were instances where a person of color, especially if it was a man of color, directly had a conversation or directly called in, if you will, 
a white person about either their behavior or lack of response to something, that's when the language of safety would come up. And for me as a Black person, when I think about lack of safety, I think about some of the visuals, for example, of John Lewis being clubbed over the head and bleeding. I think of Mm -hmm. water hoses, hosing Black people down that were peacefully protesting. I think of dogs uh, let out to sick Black people. And so that's what I think about when I think of safety. So having a frank, candid conversation with someone to me is never unsafe. But I realize that my lack of fragility when it comes to race Mm-hmm. frames that or or mm-hmm. at least gives me a lens through which to understand that whereas a white person might not have that lens yeah. and so you know th- that's where I'm like unsafe really unsafe you're having this is unsafe to you like your level of tolerance is so low that having a conversation that's not sugar-coated that's not blanketed in group speak and it's directly Lisa this is what you did to hurt my feelings or to be offensive to my race or my group, et cetera. And let's have a conversation about it. All of a sudden, quote unquote, hypothetical Lisa becomes unsafe. That's Mm -hmm. what I don't get. I I just don't Mm -hmm. get the lack of tolerance for conversation. Yeah. I mean, that's probably a whole other conversation about why white people have a lack of tolerance for conversations about race and how that's kind of embedded in our cultural psyche, um, not helped by the Mm. fact these conversations don't happen in school. But, um, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. I think about, I think safety is used as um, a synonym for discomfort and in some Mm -hmm. cases, extreme discomfort. But you're right, like being extremely uncomfortable in a conversation about race, because I think there are times where you could be extremely uncomfortable and that might be unsafe. Um, Mm -hmm. But in Mm -hmm. this particular example, yeah, my extreme discomfort, my squirming, my like not feeling (laughs) good about this conversation, then Mm -hmm. I translate that into feeling unsafe and that you are attacking me. Mm -hmm. Right. And Mm -hmm. when you think about linguistically Mm -hmm. telling Mm -hmm. me that I fucked up. Right. You're not. I mean, I mean, I guess people could disagree with me that you can attack people verbally. But when I think about attacking in the context of race based on Mm -hmm. what you just articulated around safety. Right. Like it's I'm not being attacked, Mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. If if I witness a situation where a person of color calls out a white person and they don't use any epithets. They don't use any, um, (laughs) they don't use any curse words like we, we colorfully may use here. Um, There just doesn't seem to be anything even unprofessional about the conversation, but it's still interpreted as lack of safety for the white person. That then gets very interesting because not only does it reveal the fragility of the white person, but depending on the empowerment or lack thereof in the group dynamics, the person of color who merely made a statement or merely didn't smile, for example, I could go there with some of the visuals, the nonverbals, that person of color who did the calling out then becomes a target in another way because, oh, you made the white woman cry or you made the white guy leave the conversation or you did. And so to me, once again, it, it almost goes back to another form of very warped victim blaming um, when it's a person of color or an oppressed person in a particular group 
mm-hmm. that calls them out on this. Mm-hmm. It just, it reverses back, which is to me, that's the scarier part is, okay, I didn't smile at you when you said something kind to me. That doesn't mean that I'm mean or targeting you. That just means that I didn't emote. It has mm-hmm. nothing to do with you or the situation. So I just think it's interesting that the, the call out that's meant to assist the white person in some ways, in fact, ends up, you know, boomeranging back. Mm. So do we have a situation then where in the 12 months um, since George Floyd's murder, where the conditions have existed for deeper conversations, particularly with white people about white privilege, white supremacy, um, and there's been more calling out, calling in, but to use your word, the boomerang, right? The conditions that were created to have those conversations then led to um, those conversations being shut down because of safety, discomfort, you're not professional. Like, mm-hmm. I don't really want to go here. Whereas before George Floyd, the conversation didn't even get that far, right? right. That calls right. of safety and discomfort and such um, right. happened with any regularity. They certainly happened. But mm-hmm. so I'm not sure if I'm articulating that, but it's kind of, um, mm-hmm. it's like it's had the reverse effect, if that makes yeah. sense. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, and I think too, it, it gets really interesting when, you know, this is one of the things that I'm working with a client on at the moment where they're now having to even think through, are they going to continue to have the conversations? If they do, what's going to be the framing of the conversations? And are these conversations flying in the face of what used to be defined as professional or not? Because Mm. there are some entire industries and, and depending on your generation, there've been individuals that have really been groomed not to talk about certain things. And so the conversation itself, it's a really good scapegoat to say, oh, that's not professional to talk about. So let's not talk about that. Or, you know, that's, um, you know, going back to some of our previous conversations of divisiveness, et cetera. So I think there's a number of different things that actually work against our actual intentions. (laughs) Um, Let's say, oh, let's throw cold water on this conversation because it's, maybe too complex and unfortunately making people who are not used to being uncomfortable, uncomfortable for the first times. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, t- so the extent to which this is happening in endurance sport, I don't know, but I am curious mm-hmm. um, and actually would love to hear from listeners. If you have initiated these shifts or conversations, you know, last year in 2020 mm-hmm. and you, you found that they have fizzled out or uh, as you have kind of gotten closer to some, level of authenticity, white people in particular have pieced out because it doesn't feel safe for them. That would be be curious to know that because part of transformational change, it's not an overnight thing, right? It has to be a sustained conversation. There has to be momentum there. Um, And, you know, we see this happen a lot where there's initially momentum and then it doesn't go anywhere because Mm -hmm. it means white people in particular, when we're talking about race, have to give something up, right? something that wasn't theirs to begin with, but. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Well, and, and the conversations, it's like that workout that you didn't want to do anyway. You know, it's, it's, it's truly like that thing where it's like, okay, let me find the most convenient excuse not to have the conversation because I really didn't want to do it anyway. 
And so, you know, that's where, you know, the grappling doesn't happen. And, you know, I, I think now what's going to be curious, Lisa, and something that we hadn't talked about in the past is that now that triathlon is slowly opening up, yes, is, is the conversation happening? Is it still happening? And how might the format of the conversation adjust mm. based on us being in person versus mm -hmm. um, just solely being in our virtual endurance sports spaces? So it's one thing to be, we talk about it all the time. We call it being a thumb thug, basically, where, oh, you're quick to pop off at somebody about A, B, and C on Facebook, social media, et cetera. But when you see that person at that race that you popped off at about whatever race, yeah. gender, sexual orientation, et cetera, topic, how will the conversation switch or will it happen at all? And, and we don't know. I mean, I'm pretty confrontational. So we can continue the conversation in person, virtual, it doesn't matter to me. But there are some people who are not. And frankly, some of it is not even about fragility. Sometimes it's about boundaries and compartmentalization where mm -hmm. we've talked about this before, you know, racing is my piece. And so yeah, I might have the conversation virtually because I'm not at a race, but once I get to my race, I want to be focused on that and having fun. So I I'm wondering how the shift from virtual to more in-person may also affect these conversations and yeah. how they're being framed and what, what language are we using to frame it. That's a great point, right? Because if these conversations around diversity, equity, and inclusion, representation in your tri-club, in your sports club, in your endurance sport organization happened primarily online, um, that is a whole different can of beans. Is that the phrase? Um, right, 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 right. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, we know over the last year, probably a bit longer, you know, we've seen a lot of, you know, social media pages and so and and so forth that have popped up that are full of endurance sport athletes that are interested in social justice issues, racial issues. They may, may be on just to learn something new, but that in and of itself is pretty comfortable compared to facing that person at a race or at an event or at a brunch or at a dinner with your tri club, what have you, that's very comfortable compared to facing them in person. And so at some point that has to shift because one of those people, mm -hmm. or maybe several of those folks say, may say, Hey, tell me more about what you were thinking when, you know, when we had that post the other week or what have you, and are we prepared to have those sometimes volatile discussions in purpose in person and for those that are in tri-clubs or in more organized groups, what are you doing to be prepared so that you do have some fruitful conversations? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And yeah. I think yeah. part of that preparation, you know, we got to get our language together here. How are we going to frame these conversations? Yeah, it's kind of like putting your physical money where your cyber mouth is, right? Like you have to, trans <laughs> have to transition it. <laughs> it off of the internet. Um, because a Facebook mm -hmm. group is pretty darn comfortable. I know certainly, um, you know, white people, men feel attacked in the context on the, in the context of a Facebook group, but that mm. you can retreat very easily in that environment, um, oh, and yeah. disengage. It's much harder mm -hmm. to do that when you're actually have a person who's standing in front of you, who's saying mm -hmm. that behavior, that statement hurt me. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and the other thing I'm thinking about, not meaning to take like a hard left turn here, but is for white people in, in the context of race, there's so few examples 
in our popular media, in our families, in our organizations Mm. of white people, you know, grappling with that tension about what to do, how to call things out and how to respond appropriately when you yourself are called out, right? Like there's no, Mm. there's no good role models when I, when I think about it. And so, you know, white people aren't seeing that. um, Right. Right. And I wonder how much of an effect that has. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So uh, let me try to get clear on what you're saying. So uh, maybe there's not enough, uh, even in the media or, or social media, any media, there's not enough role models of these experiences Mm -hmm. for white people to even take their cues to be like, well, how Mm -hmm. do I engage with someone around this topic? Or how do I gracefully make a mistake and bounce back from it? I don't see anybody making mistakes. There's no model of me doing this well. So how do I do it exactly? Exactly. Yeah. And Mm. doing it, you know, face-to-face versus in an online format. Yeah. 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 Well, look, I will say, I have to tell you, um, (laughs) the, the few moments that I have to actually veg out and watch some type of TV um, this, this is terrible, y'all. Usually it's kind of violent stuff. Like I'll watch SWAT or I'll watch uh, SEAL Team or <laughs> something like that. Other than This Is Us, I do like This Is Us. But um, no, but you're reminding me of a recent episode of SWAT, which I truly only watch for the eye candy of Shamar Moore. That's probably not uh, the best thing to say on this podcast. But um, Shamar Moore is the greatest Um and so on SWAT, there, there was a really great example of this kind of mulling it over, misstep, figure it out, try to make the right decision moment. And so mm-hmm. um, within the last couple of episodes, um, Deacon K, who's a, a white SWAT officer, um, you know, he kind of picked up on some cues based on some language that was used that um, another SWAT officer was part of a white supremacist group, or at least on the fringes of a white supremacist group. I won't say they were all the way in there, but they were using very common um, dog whistle language to let you know that they're part of this particular group. And um, so the white SWAT officer, Deacon K, went to Hondo, the African-American officer, and told him, you know, this is, I'm trying to figure it out. I'm wrestling with it. Do you really think? I hope not. You know, nobody really respects us as police officers now, but you know, I want to give him a chance and, you know, give him the benefit of the doubt. Well, eventually I'll fast forward through this episode. Uh, Deacon K confirms that uh, this white officer is on the fringes of this white supremacist group. And he goes to Hondo, the African-American, and says, what should I do? Um, And Hondo slash Shamar says, well, you need to, you know, run it up to the commander and have them take some steps. And Deacon K was like, "Mm, I I thought just telling you was enough. And so I just appreciated how moving forward, Deacon K as the white officer really wrestled because I think he knew what to do, but he was weighing the cost of doing it. And that's discomfort. Mm -hmm. Um, But we don't, we don't even see those examples of grappling with discomfort enough for white folks. Um, Mm -hmm. In media, and so th- that whole exchange to me was so very interesting. Um, and I'm still kind of wrestling with it. I just saw it recently, but I thought it was an important example to lift up. Yeah, and the point there that 
you're saying that he knew, like inside he knew what he needed to do, but he was grappling with the discomfort around what is the cost to me personally of doing it, right? Mm, so there's an mm-hmm. internal conflict there. And I think that that is probably a feeling that is experienced by a lot of people. Um, and yeah. I know that we've talked about, you know, consequence and cost on this podcast before in terms of what does that mean mm. for you stepping up and those consequences right. and costs are different depending on your identities. But, oh, yeah. you know, as we, yeah, as we transition back into, into being in physical contact with people, And, you know, Mm -hmm. as the anniversary rolls around, I think that that is an interesting point around, you know what you need to do, Mm -hmm. but, but then you don't do it. So is that, is that worse than not knowing what you need to do? (laughs) Mm, Yeah. Yeah. So the, the, the difference between ignorance and, mm, yeah, well, well, here's my thing. So As I'm sitting here watching this unfold, I'm thinking to myself, gosh, what a privilege it is to even grapple with the fact that you can choose to do something or not do something about it. Like just that consideration is a privilege. Whereas I don't get to wake up in the morning and decide, oh, well, do I plan to engage in racism or not today? That's not an option. I do and I will every single day. And so just even the the grappling of it, I'm looking back like wanting to take my shoe off and throw it at the TV because I'm thinking even in the grappling moments of trying to figure out what you're going to do, like even if uh, he gets that Molotov cocktail thrown in his window of his home with his kids there, he still had the privilege of choosing whether he was going to take mm-hmm. the risk of experiencing that or not. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that grappling was so interesting to me, whereas, you know, someone else that's African-American and we're not even getting into police brutality or any of that right now. That's not where we're going, even though that's real. Um, but I do think the grappling in and of itself for a white person is a privilege. And we as folks who have the privilege also of participating in endurance sport have to figure out how do we want to frame those conversations so that we all can move forward with very real unsugar-coated conversations that force everyone to be at a level of discomfort that's greater than mm-hmm. where they are currently. So everybody has yeah. to take that step out there. Oh, I really love the way that you just articulated that, um, that to grapple with something then you there's more than one choice, right? If you're grappling with something mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. that in and of itself is a privilege that, you know, when you're in the dominant group, white, male, straight, able-bodied, mm-hmm. yep, that's a yep. privilege that you have because the person that's marginalized doesn't have that choice. Um, yeah. So even in that discomfort and figuring out what am I going to do, which pathway am I going to go down, um, mm-hmm. you're kind of exhibiting and living a privilege, right? Yeah. 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 It's, it's really demonstrating that you have a fork in the road where some people don't have a fork in the road at all. They just have to keep going in that direction. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I I think that that is a privilege to hold. Um, And then, you know, it's, I, I just really think we could ride that momentum of the last year pushing past the George Floyd murder, kind of being very intentional about how we want to frame these conversations and what type of language we want to employ. And yeah. I, I don't know about you, Lisa, but I know for me, when I 
facilitate really tough conversations and dialogue and so forth. You know, we have some ground rules or at least some group norms that we want to have that are probably different from any other groups that folks have ever experienced before, um, whether it's, you know, extending grace to someone or understanding the differences between intent versus impact. Um, or my, one of my favorite ones is um, the modified Vegas rule. Usually we say what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Modified Vegas rule is what's said here stays here, but what's learned here leaves here. So mm-hmm. I don't need to know about someone, you know, being brutally attacked on their run at da 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 da. But what I want to carry away from that conversation is what can I do to be an ally to someone mm-hmm. or keep mm-hmm. my eyes open for other people. So if something does happen, I can support them or intervene or uh, so, you know, there's lots of group norms to having these conversations and people think that these conversations will be a difficult content, but not difficult to conduct. And they don't realize how difficult it is to conduct until they're neck deep into some foolishness. They can't get themselves out of <laughs> like, they can't unravel mm-hmm. themselves out of this conversation. It's like, an anaconda that keeps on mm-hmm. squeezing you tighter and you just can't get out of it because you didn't have someone that was skilled in mm. kind of guiding people through that process. Right. Which kind mess. of, it brings us back to that first point. Like, so have those conversations been sustained, right? Or did the anaconda win <laughs> essentially? Oh, yeah, 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 um, yeah, exactly. Because that's, yep. you know, that's all creating tension that white people don't like and um, mm-hmm. they want to get out of it, you know? Mm-hmm. And now that, now with triathlon and other sports coming back, you know, my time is, is taken up with this other stuff now, right? I don't oh, have yeah. room to have these conversations anymore because I'm mm-hmm. swimming, biking and running. Um, exactly. And returning yeah. back to work. If you, yeah. you know, are in a space where you can, you know, work outside of the home now and you can return back to your office. Now you're thinking about logistics and, oh, well, the, is the pool open on my way to work? And da, da, da. And so it is very easy to fall into that trap of the anaconda squeezing the time and the momentum out of the conversation. Mm-hmm. And so I guess for us just, you know, kind of to think things through or wrap things up for folks is how would we suggest that they keep the momentum going um, where they can still have some of those fruitful conversations. And I guess, you know, my first thought is really to stay on task with the urgency because we don't mm-hmm. want to, mm-hmm. we don't want to keep waiting on the next hashtag to remind us to think about these issues. Right. Right. And so someone needs to be tasked or someone's need to be tasked with being the person that initiates those conversations, um, whether it's the you know, the program director of your local tri club or whoever it is, someone needs to be tasked with doing it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And then I would also add not letting, um, you know, calls of safety or this feels like I'm being attacked or, and mm-hmm. you know, please give me some grace, um, yeah. derail you, right? Don't let that language, um, have people get up and walk away from the table. Yes, 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 absolutely. Yeah, so I, I think that would feed into the, um, I, usually we talk about call-out culture all the time. I, I still feel strongly we should call things out, but also with the call-out to call people into conversation about it as well. So doing the both ends mm-hmm. of, mm-hmm. you know, naming it while also working through it and you know, muddling through it a mm-hmm. bit, rolling around in the mistake or the error or the 
lack of consciousness around a certain area. So I think the call out and call in is extremely important um, as one concept and not just one or the other. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I, I think that's crucial. Don't, don't let folks off the hook for sure. Yeah. And don't descend into niceness, right? <laughs> because oh. change, change doesn't happen when you're nice. And I think that when you run into resistance, it's pretty easy to retreat, right? Because it gets hard mm. um, as a facilitator or as an advocate or as an ally or a co-conspirator, however you're naming yourself. Um, mm-hmm. And so then you kind of retreat into this, oh, you know, I know you didn't mean it. I know that you didn't intend that. Or, you know, grace becomes a letting someone off the hook. And I think right. you have to be vigilant um, right. about right. not letting that. Because when something gets nice, something doesn't go anywhere. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. The, the niceness kind of takes, it sucks out the momentum out of what you're doing. And frankly, you know, Lisa, this may be another podcast for another day, but I, I even think that we may want to think about a a group norm around redefining what niceness really is Mm -hmm, because, mm -hmm. you know, being nice or kind or, you know, Like I've said before, I know a whole lot of nice racists. Let me tell you, they are Southern drawl, kind, you know, seeming to be smiley in your face type people, but they don't have my best interest at heart. They don't have my children's best interest at heart. They don't have lots of other oppressed groups um, as a priority to them. So, you know, I, I think for me, kindness even has to be redefined as I am demonstrating how I care about you through the kindness of pointing out where you're making some missteps Mm -hmm. and let's have a discussion Mm -hmm. about it. Mm -hmm. And I know that kindness does not feel good to you. It it almost reminds me of, you know, raising children that you have to correct. They're like, no, you're not being nice to me right now. No, I'm not. But, you know, 40 years from now, when I'm long gone, you're going to be like, oh, thank God somebody intervened to show me the right way. It, it it just seems like the discomfort Mm -hmm. You, you can't dis, you can't escape discomfort like it's necessary like that yeah. it's necessary it's it's part of the process yeah so I'd say with that listeners check in with your groups your clubs your organization your businesses if you haven't heard a whole lot about that diversity committee or any kind of um, transformational mm-hmm. change or maybe it's taken a back seat because things are ramping up in terms of races and training. Um, we encourage you to take a second look at that report back. We have a Facebook group. You can email us, um, Mm -hmm. leave us a voice message, send us a recorded message. We'd love to hear, um, have you still got that momentum in the groups in which you participate? Hey folks, Sarah and Sarah here from feisty medias. If we were writing podcast. So Sarah, Do you remember last year when we created the feistiest team in endurance sports? Oh, I remember. (laughs) It's a, okay, it's a team that faces challenges head on, understands the connection between mental and physical health, understands the value of a good laugh. We definitely understand that. Um, And aims to get the best out of ourselves and each other in sport and life. Yeah, so we've had a full year of virtual happy hours and expert talks, team challenges, awesome prizes, and swag. And we are ready to open the door for year two of the Feisty Team. We are relaunching officially, but that's not all. 
They wouldn't call us feisty if we didn't have something extra up our sleeves. <laughs> so this year, since racing is kicking off again, we decided to kick off even harder. On May 18th to 20th, we'll be hosting the Level Up Summit, which is three evenings of learning and fun to set the tone for 2021. At Level Up, we'll discuss everything you'll need to start your race season off with a bang. Work with your female physiology to get the best out of yourself and stay true to our community goal of creating a more inclusive sport. So when you sign up for the Feisty Team, you get access to the Level Up Summit for free. You can also sign up for the Summit separately if you wish, if you just want to get like a taste of what the Feisty Team is about. Head on over to FeistyTriathlon.com for all the deets. Yep, that's FeistyTriathlon.com, which is also a brand new website. Racing is back and together we will level up. Unfazed, a podcast produced by Live Feisty Media and supported by the Outspoken Women in Triathlon Summit. Edited and produced by the fabulous Lindsay Glassford. Email us at info at unfazedpodcast.com and find us on social at try to defy, at Dr. Gold Speaks, or at Outspoken Women in Tri. I'm Lisa. I'm Shauna. Thanks for listening. Stay unfazed, folks. See you next time.